You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Well, as you know, we're going through the Gospel of Luke in a series called The Gospel for Everyone. And uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 869. But while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you are sports fans? Sports fans. Now, this is a good time to be a football fan in the city of Columbus. But I'm just talking about any sport. But have you ever noticed that almost every sport has in it a team that is called the angels or the demons or the devils? For example, there are the Los Angeles Angels that play in Anaheim Stadium. There's the Duke Blue Devils. And did you know there was a hockey team in Dayton, a professional hockey team, that was called the Dayton Demons? Now, they're no longer around. I think they got cast out of the league. (laughs) And of course, there are the Michigan Wolverines. And we all know that a Wolverine is really a type of demon. But why are these names used? Angels, devils, and demons. It's almost as if deep down inside there's an awareness that this world is filled with spiritual beings. And the Bible not only confirms this to be true, but doesn't shy away from it in the least. And as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, time and time again we've seen Jesus confronted by demons. And with authority, he cast them out. And the demons clearly recognized his authority. You may recall back in chapter 8, Jesus performed a cinema-grade exorcism, displaying his power over the spiritual realm. You remember a man filled with many demons meets Jesus by the seashore. He was a wild man, a naked man. He lived among the tombs. He had broken free from the chains and the irons that were around his feet. And he cried out in a loud voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. And the demons begged Jesus over and over again not to order them into the abyss. And remember, there was a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside uh, nearby. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And Jesus gave them permission And the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the pigs rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned. And when all the people came to see what had happened, they found the man sitting at Jesus' feet and clothed and in his right mind. And the man who was set free begged to go with Jesus. He said, Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to be with you. But Jesus said, no. I want you to go back to your home, back to your neighborhood, and tell everyone how much God has done for you. And so the man went away, and he told everyone how much Jesus had done for him. And you know, that's what God wants us to do, doesn't he? If we know Jesus, we have a testimony of how he's changed our lives, and God wants us to tell others what all he's done for us. We have good news. We have the gospel, and God wants us to share it. Now, here in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is once again confronted by a demon. And we'll pick up the story in verse 14, but before we do, would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come here and freely worship. We've already been blessed by the worship. And now we ask that you would bless your word, that you would open the scriptures to us, that you'd speak to us, you give us grace to obey what you show us, to apply what you show us to our life. Now we ask that you would guide and direct our time in Jesus' name, amen. Well, beginning in verse 14, we read this. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, here was a demon who had made a man mute. Jesus cast it out, and the man could speak. Now, there were three responses to this miracle. First, the crowd was amazed. Luke says they marveled. As we read through the Gospels, time and time again, we see Jesus doing amazing things, things that only God could do. And time and time again, people marveled at him. Jesus truly is amazing. There has never been and there never will be another person like Jesus Christ. And then there was a second response. While many marveled, there were some, probably the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, they said that he did it, he cast this demon out by the power of Beelzebub, or Satan himself. And then thirdly, there was the third response, some responded by testing Jesus, demanding that he give them a sign from heaven. Now it's the latter two responses I want to focus on this morning. First, the accusation that Jesus did this miracle by the power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub meant the Lord of the flies. And the Jews later changed it to the Lord of the dunghill. So that's what Satan is Lord of, the dunghill. But Jesus also identified him as the prince of this world. Now that may surprise some people that Jesus would give Satan that title. But no, that's exactly who Satan is. He's the prince of this world. We remember back in Luke 4 when Jesus was tempted by the devil and the devil took him up to a high place and in an instant he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. It will all be yours, Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me. Well, of course, Jesus resisted the temptation and he quoted scripture. He said, it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Three times Jesus was tempted. Three times He quoted Scripture. An example for us to follow when we're being tempted. And that's why it's so important for us to know the Word of God. To have it memorized. Because it's the sword that we use to battle the devil. But it's interesting. When Satan claimed authority over the kingdoms of this world, Jesus didn't refute this. He didn't argue with the devil. Why? Because it's true for now. Until Jesus returns to earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, Satan is the prince and power of, this, of the air. He is the God of this world. So the devil is the one who controls so much of our culture. You ever wonder why things are so dark today? 
Well, it's really no great mystery. As we read the Bible, we see that there's an evil mastermind behind it all. We read in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, we as Christians are caught up in a spiritual battle against the devil and his demons. I'm talking about a spirit power that infiltrates our culture, that infiltrates our government, our media, our entertainment world. It infiltrates even our religious institutions and the lives of men and women, and unfortunately, even our children. So the Bible tells us to be alert, to be sober-minded, and we're told that we're to submit ourselves to God. We're to resist the devil, and he'll flee from us. We're to put on the full armor of God. We're to stand firm in the faith by praying in the Spirit and by knowing and applying God's Word in our lives. So here was Jesus casting out demons, and some were saying he did it by the power of Satan. I mean, really? I don't think so. I mean, does that make any sense at all? No, of course not. You know, I can't remember a time when so many ungodly people have said so many things that just don't make sense as people do today. Things that just aren't logical. Well, how does Jesus respond? Let's look at verses 17 now through 20. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus shows that this claim is absurd. Why would the devil drive out his own demons? He wouldn't. A kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will be ruined. A nation divided will be ruined. No, demons are not driven out by, by Satan. They're driven out by the power of God. So Jesus went on to say in verses 21 and 22, now look at that, them. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is that one who is stronger. The devil and his demons have great power, and we should never make the mistake of underestimating them, but we shouldn't overestimate them either. As we see as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, demons are no match for Jesus Christ nor are they any match for the Christian who is abiding in Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. But we've got to keep our guard up. We've got to be alert. The Bible says the devil prowls about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He never takes a day off. And we can't take a day off either from the battle. We're in a spiritual battle. And we're either winning or losing. We're either advancing or we're retreating. There's no middle ground. We can't be neutral. 
Now look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. We're either for Jesus or we're not. We're either united with him or we're not. You see, right here on this earth, there are two worlds. There's a world that's dominated by evil and dominated by Satan, and there's a world that's dominated by Christ, and we have to choose. You know, the story is told long ago of a man who didn't want to choose sides in the Civil War. So he decided he'd wear a blue hat and a gray coat. And you know what happened? They shot at him from both sides. Or could you imagine going to the OSU-Michigan game and you decide, I'm going to wear a Michigan hat and an OSU or Ohio State sweater? How do you think that's going to go over in that hostile crowd? Not very good. And in the same way, spiritually, we can't have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. James says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of God the world becomes an enemy of God. We have to choose. We're either on, we're going to either be on God's side or Satan's side. Now, look at verses 24 and 26. Jesus went on to say, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Well, what is Jesus saying here? I believe he was describing the attitude and the condition of the Jewish religious leaders and the nation of Israel. Think of, nation, uh, think of Israel's history. As soon as a good king would pull down Israel's idols, a bad king would come in and set them back up again. In the same way, a person can try to clean up their life, turn over a new leaf, so to speak, try to reform their life, but it doesn't last. Our efforts to empty ourselves of evil is not enough. Jesus said we must be converted. We must be born again. And that happens when we repent of sin and we look to the cross where Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins and we receive him as Lord and Savior. And when we do, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We're born from above. You know, an old illustration comes to mind. You can take a pig, bring him into your house. You know, some people have pet pigs. I've heard the Eastwoods, They had a pet pig. Now, I I don't know if they still have that pig, but that's not my kind of pet. I prefer a dog. But but anyway, some people have pet pigs. You can bring a pig into your home, give him a good bath, wash him up, put a little bit of Old Spice on him, (laughs) put a nice pig sweater on him, and you say, now, look at my pig there. I've got a new pig. Look at him. He's a perfect gentleman sitting there. But you open the door and let him out. And where's he going to go? He's going to go right straight back to the mud hole because he's still a pig. He hasn't been changed on the inside. And many have tried to clean up their life and do better. 
Some have turned to religion. But religion without a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ has never helped anyone. If we don't know Christ, if we've never received Him as Lord and Savior, if we've never been born again, if the Holy Spirit has not come to live within us, then there's plenty of room in our heart for Satan to enter in. And this, I believe, was the condition of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. Oh, they looked so good on the outside. They had religion. And they looked so good in their flowing robes, but inside they were dark, and their hearts were far from God. You know, a question that's often asked is this. Is it possible for a Christian to be demon-possessed? The answer to that question is a decisive no. When we receive Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, there's no way a demon can come in and possess us. And all the demons in hell could never force the Holy Spirit to move out. When He comes in, He comes in to stay forever. And we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Until that day of redemption. But we can be demon-influenced. That's why it's so important for us to keep our spiritual guard up, to be in God's Word, to be in prayer, and continue in the fellowship of the church where we find encouragement and teaching from God's Word. Now, what happens next is a little strange. All of a sudden, a woman in the crowd speaks up for Jesus. Look at verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here's a woman who loves Jesus. She's a fan of Jesus. Now it's important to remember the setting. Here is the sinless perfect, pure Son of God, and the Pharisees are accusing Him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And if that's not bad enough, others are demanding a sign. They want a sign. I mean, are you kidding me? How many signs do they need to see? Right before their very eyes, He just cast out a mute demon out of a man, and now the man can speak. Jesus has done miracle after miracle. He has done things that only God could do. He has raised the dead. He's walked on water. He's calmed a raging storm with a single command, fed a multitude with a little boy's lunch, healed the sick and the crippled, opened the eyes of the blind, and they want a sign? And from within the midst of these ungodly accusers, this woman is bold enough to take a stand for Jesus. And she sets an example for us today to never be ashamed of Jesus Christ in this wicked and sinful world in which we live today. Now notice how Jesus answers this woman. She says, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. But Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Here's what we need to take away. Blessing comes to our lives when we hear God's Word and when we keep it. Blessing comes to our lives when we hear the Word of God and obey it and do what it says. Blessing comes to our lives when we hear the Word of God and we put it into practice, when we apply it to our life. Obedience to God's Word brings blessing to you and me. 
And the question for us this morning is this, do we experience that blessing? Do we experience the blessing that comes from God when we read and apply the Bible to our lives? You know, one of the greatest tragedies today is that the Bible is available to almost everybody. Almost everybody has a Bible, but to millions, it's a closed book, either because they don't read it or because they read it without applying its teaching to themselves. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it, those who obey it and put it into practice. You know, I meet so many Christians today who they don't read the Bible. They just don't read the Bible. And as a result, many today are biblically malnourished. Did you know that 9 out of 10 American homes today have a Bible? 9 out of 10. But fewer than half of all Americans can name the four Gospels. Many of the participants in a survey that was done to determine their knowledge of the Bible could name all four of the Beatles, but couldn't name one of the Ten Commandments. I don't know what the commandments are, but I know John, Paul, George, and Ringo. You know, that's really sad. 82% of Americans surveyed thought that the statement, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible. Not only is it not in the Bible, it's not even biblical. Well, it gets worse. One out of ten people thought Moses was one of the twelve disciples. Moses! How did he get in there? And how about this? 12% thought that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. A survey, a survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that 50% thought Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. Not the kind of couple I'd like to hang around with. Hey, Sodom, what are you and Gomorrah doing this weekend? I don't think so. So many own a Bible, and they even have respect for it, but they don't read it. They don't study it. They may pray, and that's so very important, like Nick pointed out last week. They pray, and they say, well, I speak to God, but Lord, I really don't take the time to read the Bible so that you can speak to me. And you know the number one reason why they don't read it? Because they don't make it a priority. I meet college students all the time who say, well, I know I should read the Bible, but, but I, I just haven't. I, I don't. Um. And so I challenge them to read just a little bit every day. I say, look, I know you're a student. I know you're busy. You've got a lot of studying to do. But try to make it a commitment just to read a little bit every day. And I tell them the story of when I was at OSU and I was a full-time student. I was playing football. But I made a commitment that I was going to read the Bible every day, and I had a little paperback New Testament Bible, and um, I started reading through the Gospels, and every day I'd mark where I'd read, and sometimes I was so busy and had so much schoolwork, and I was, like I said, football took up so much time, but you know, I decided I was going to make a commitment, and so I might only be able to read one little section, and I would mark it, but I read it every day, and then my roommate, he, he began to do the same thing. He later became a Christian. But you know, that was a commitment I made. It was a discipline. And you know what? I've never regretted the investment I've made in the Word of God. We'll never regret investing 
in the Word of God. But I'll tell you what, we will regret it if we don't. But we may be surprised how far we could get through the Bible by just reading a little bit every day. I heard about a guy who was bragging. He said, I read 10 chapters in the Bible, and someone said, that's amazing. What was it about? The man said, I have no idea. You know, we'd be better off reading 10 verses with comprehension. God tells us to meditate on His Word. Now, not some weird Eastern religious meditation where we empty our brain. But biblical meditation is when we read and we ponder, when we read and we consider, when we think about it. It's like chewing our food so we can digest it better. It means to contemplate, not rushing through God's Word, but asking ourselves, what is God saying to me? Is there sin in my life that I need to confess and repent of? Is is there something I need to obey or to put into practice? It's asking, what does this passage teach me about God? What's this passage teach me about myself, about my motives, my desires? What's this passage teach me about the church or this world or evangelism? What's it teach me about God's heart for the lost and His desire to see all people saved and our responsibility to share the gospel? How can I apply what I'm reading to my life? Now, you see, when we do this, Jesus said, we'll be blessed. Now, finally, what about those who wanted a sign from heaven? Now, let's look at verse 29. This is how Jesus answers those who wanted a sign. Verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than then Jonah is here. Have you noticed how Jesus always tells it like it is? As the crowds get larger and larger, he tells them, this is an evil generation. It seeks a sign. But he said, you're not going to get a sign except the sign of Jonah. Now, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, to gain a little more insight, we can look at Matthew 12, 40. And here in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah is a type. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But to fully understand the answer Jesus gave, we have to go back to the Old Testament book of Jonah. You remember that God commanded the prophet Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and warn them that he was going to destroy them for their wickedness. The people of Nineveh were wicked. They were cruel. They did unspeakable, horrible things. And Jonah didn't want these enemies of Israel to be spared. So Jonah disobeyed and he tried to run from God. And instead of going to Nineveh, he headed toward Tarshish by boat. And to sum things up, God told Jonah to go. Jonah said, no. 
And God said, oh? You probably remember what happened next. The Lord sent a severe storm, and the crew fearing for their lives threw Jonah overboard and was swallowed by a huge fish where he remained for three days and nights. And after the three days, God caused the fish to vomit Jonah out on the dry land. So after graduating from Fish University, Jonah decided to obey God, and he went to Nineveh and preached repentance. And you know what happened? The people repented. From the king on down, they repented. They turned from their wicked ways, and they turned to God. They believed God's message through Jonah, and God spared them. And he didn't bring the... the, judgment upon them as he had threatened. The book of Jonah shows us the extent of God's love and grace. That God wants all people to be saved, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. He loves people and wants them to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Let me ask you, let me ask you this. Is there someone that the Lord has been nudging you to share the gospel with? Now, are you running from that? Or are you doing what God is telling you to do? But here's the point. When the people of Nineveh heard Jonah's message, they believed God and repented of their evil ways, while the critics of Jesus continued in their unbelief, even though they had had far more evidence than the Ninevites, because they saw with their own eyes the miracles that Jesus was doing. So Jesus said the men of Nineveh would rise up at the judgment and condemn them because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and Jonah didn't even care about them. And yet here was Jesus, the Son of God, who loved them so much that he was going to be willing to go to the cross and suffer and die for their sins, but they refused to repent at the preaching of Jesus. The queen of Solomon praised God when she heard Solomon's wisdom. And Solomon, was, he was just a sinner like us. By contrast, Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, had come to the very people he had created and loved, and they rejected him. So Jesus said the queen of the south would also condemn them at the judgment because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. But here was Jesus who was far greater than Solomon, far greater than Jonah. And they wouldn't listen. They didn't listen to him. These people had seen Jesus do so many miracles, more than enough to convince them that he was the Messiah. But you see, if someone doesn't want to believe, nothing will convince them. Not even if they see many more miracles. You know, many say, if I could just see a real miracle, then I could believe in God. But the problem with wanting a sign from God is, is if He gives us one, we'll want another one, and then we'll want another one, and we'll want another sign. We already have plenty of evidence. God has revealed Himself through creation. We can look around and see all that God has made, and we know that He exists. He has revealed Himself to us through our conscience that little voice that cries aloud when we do wrong. Who put that there? That, that instinct within us that we just know there's a God. He has revealed Himself to us through the person of Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself to us through the Word of God. And you see, we have the sign of Jonah. 
You see, Jesus' response to his, critic, his critics applies to us. We have the eyewitness accounts and the historical evidence of his death and resurrection. We can see the centuries of his work in the lives of believers from all around the world. And the question for us this morning is this. Do we listen to Jesus? Do we listen to Jesus by making Bible reading a priority in our life? Do we take the time out of our busy day and sit at the feet of Jesus and hear His Word as we saw Mary did last week? But you know what? It's good to know that we're not alone when it comes to understanding and applying God's Word to our lives. See, God has given us the Spirit who speaks to us and helps us to understand His Word, who leads us and guides us into all truth. You know, after all, the Bible is the only book we could ever read where the author can be right there with us, helping us to understand. But we need to do our part. So let's do our part to make His Word a priority. To study it. Yes, if we can just read a little bit every day, but there's times we need to study it. We need to to get into, to dive into it and spend an hour, two hours, three hours in the Word of God to study it and to know it. To meditate on it. To memorize it. To believe it. Apply it to our life. And to most importantly, obey it. Not deceiving ourselves by just hearing it, but by doing what it says. And Jesus said, when we do that, we'll be blessed. We'll be blessed. Well, Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We believe it's true. We value it. And we love Your Word. Lord, help us to never take it for granted. I remember that time John Hopler spoke and he showed that video of people who were getting the Word of God for the first time and they were just so thrilled and so thankful to have the Word of God. And we have Bibles everywhere. Help us to make a commitment to make your word a priority. To read it every day because it's food for our soul. And Lord, help us to understand it. Open the Scriptures to us when we open it up. And help us to apply what you show us to our life so that we might experience the blessing that comes from you by obeying your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.